Okay, so so it's clear that you theology was very important to you, and that as a young man you were developing a theology that in many ways was divergent from where the church was taking the theology. Oh yes, yes, divergent from where the church was going. And you had a, a strong view uh, about the nature of God, which was Christ for you. Yes. And um, and you you probably put less stock in the leaders or where what it's all about, the church leaders or what it's all about, and where to sit at their feet and learn. For you, um, they were partners in a community and had some authority, but certainly it wasn't their authority that was that was sort of guiding and driving your perspective. You were working out your own theology, your own belief system, you know, and... Well, and I thought, I wasn't thinking that I was inventing a theology. No, you, you were... Trying to learn what the theology was. Right. I was, I, was, um, I was connecting with the theology that I thought I was reading in the standard works. Right. Okay, so talk us through how you go from that. Uh, well, first of all, was there ever any spiritual sort of underpinning? Did you ever have that big moment where the Book of Mormon lights up or you get the burning in the bosom or on your mission, you're sitting there reflecting one night and all of a sudden you feel as though God's speaking to your soul saying, it's true, it's true, Paul. You know, was there ever an overwhelming spiritual element or like, like you've already discussed, was it more about illumination in your mind as you're working out the theology? It was the second thing. Okay, okay. So I, that, there's I'm not that... given to having great, at least back then I wasn't given to having great, I mean, I, uh, emotional experiences. I cry in Shirley Temple movies, but I don't necessarily believe them. Uh, I mean, people movies can make me cry, but they don't make me believe. But when I read the New Testament, the Gospel of John, the red letter edition, Jesus' words, back then, I felt that th I was receiving genuine illumination. And I felt that... Revelation even? I don't refer to what I get as revelation because that's a freighted word in Mormonism that has more authority than I wish to give it. Mm -hmm. I feel like I get, I, I received in my life illumination about what I was reading. I'm not sure this is different from what people feel when they're in science and they get an illumination or some kind of you know, presentment of an idea that works out. I don't know. I'm not suggesting that I have authoritative revelation. I never have said that. But I do feel that my, my beliefs are tied to what I've read in the scripture. And I'm surprised when I hear, when I don't go to church now, but when I was going to church, I was always surprised when I would hear members of the church in, you know, in a sacrament meeting or Sunday school go off on this you know, Heavenly Father stuff. Well, you have to admit, you're... you're you're, you sort of did a head nod to it, but what you're not acknowledging is that the scriptures are like the Constitution. Any, any clause in the Constitution, depending on what era of the U.S. history you know, you're reading about, you can find dramatically different interpretations about what the Commerce Clause should mean or you know, what, what uh, liberties we might have. You can find areas in the Book of Mormon where it supports your view that Jesus well, was God the Father. You can also find interpretations that says Jesus prayed to God and who's he praying to? Yeah, you so, find one scripture where he prays to God and 500 scriptures where it says that he is God and you only focus on the one where he prays to God. Okay. 
Why? Well, because the, re- the, the reason why is because people don't want to take up their cross and follow him. No, but you're you're the, you the didn't you didn't acknowledge that scriptures I, I, can I, be very self contradictory. But the whole well, where is the contradiction in the Book of Mormon about who we worship? Where does it say that we worship God the Father in the Book of Mormon? Or even in the New Testament? We worship both. I mean, that... Where does it say both? Even the first vision says, hear him. God the Father is a something but... we have created out of very little. It's not the Church of, Jesus Christ, uh, Church of God the Father and his holy apostles. It's the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. Neither God the Father nor the Apostles are named in the name of the Church, and yet they're the ones we give most preeminence to. The Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints is a really good name. But, but you seem to feel like you've got the theology figured out, and if only people would read the Scriptures and really understand what they're directly saying, they would arrive at the same conclusion you have. You have. The Scripture says, Come unto me, all ye that labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. It doesn't say go to the Father. When Philip asks Jesus, when you're going to show us the Father, he says, have I been so long with you, Philip, and you don't know me? Abinadi says, it's not, God himself will come down. He won't send somebody else. He will redeem his people. And for you, this is important because it, it takes away from our emphasis on Christ. No, it's important because what it does is it means that if you're the top guy, you have to make the biggest sacrifice. You don't sacrifice somebody else. That's what Bin Laden does. Is he a Christian? <laughs> is he a Mormon? <laughs> okay, so how do you go from having this theology to being deeply involved in, in Mormon studies like Sunstone, etc.? Well, I was deeply involved in Mormon studies before I went on my mission. And I had journals full of notes and things that I had taken. And I took them with me on my mission. And when I went on my mission and got there, I went to Italy. you know, And, and then this is, this is where this Pauline thing begins. Because and my name is Paul. And I go there and I wind up going to... Um, my first assignment in Italy is Brindisi, which is the other end of the Via Appia. And that's where I met Kent Walgren. Kent Walgren later wrote the, you know, the two-volume work on uh, American Masonry, bibliography, a huge effort. And uh, unfortunately, on, on the date of its publication and its delivery to him at his apartment in Paris, he died of a heart attack, so he never saw it finished. But Kent Walgren was my first missionary companion. And uh, in Brindisi, and then we, and then I was transferred a few, like six weeks later, to Reggio Calabria, which is on the toe of the boot of Italy. Well, in the book of the Acts, you can read that Paul stops in Regium on his way to Rome, and from Reggio, I was. So you started feeling identifying with yeah, Paul. I, st- I was transferred to be one of the first two missionaries to open the city of Rome. David Rodi and I opened Rome. Opened Rome? Yeah, we were the first... For the church? For the church. I dedicated the city of Rome myself from one of the seven hills. I gave the dedicatory prayer. And you were, were you feeling sort of that this was an important place in history? Well, a person... I'm not saying that I'm St. Paul. <laughs> and I'm not saying that I'm St. Paul to the modern church. I'm just saying that these things happen to me. And I think one of the ways we find meaning in life is to see ourselves not only to see a myth, but to see ourselves as part of a myth. And whether that myth is a family myth or a corporate myth or a money myth or some kind of sexual myth, 
we, 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 we invest ourselves in some kind of a way that gives us a beginning, a middle, and end, an, an Aristotelian structure in which we can feel like we have meaning. And yes, because of these things that were happening to me in my mission, elders in my mission would write me letters, and I would write letters back explaining things that they had questions about because I had spent the last two years or two and a half years before I went on my mission in the company of uh, religion professors at BYU, particularly Hiram Andrus, who did have potential answers, or at least some answers to these questions. So I would share these with the missionaries, and I got kind of a reputation for writing these letters. Well, that's kind of Pauline, letters, <laughs> Pauline. So, you know, through my mission I have this experience. When I get back from my mission, I have a couple of, you know, right at the end of my mission I have a couple of, uh, you know, serious speed bumps I hit because my mission president uh, did not really... Uh, caught into my way of thinking. Your uh, theology? No, not my theology. I think it would be a praxis that grew out of my, you know, doxy. My, my, I mean, there was an issue that came up when they were going to excommunicate this one elder because he had left his city in the north of Italy to go down to visit a girlfriend in the south, and we got dragged into a early morning uh, uh, meeting with the president. We were all on the office staff, and he got us all together and announced that he was going to excommunicate this elder. And I, I, you know, everybody's kind of stunned by this. And I raise my stupid hand and I say, well, aren't we supposed to have a trial first? I mean, I didn't think that we could excommunicate people without having an elder's court. And he says, well, this elder is guilty and he doesn't deserve a trial. And I persisted. I said, well, President, isn't that why we have a trial, is to ascertain his guilt? And even if he is guilty, to try to get the word of the Lord on whether he should be punished or whether there are extenuating circumstances? What do we know? He took that ill. So I was released shortly after that from the office staff, and I, I was going to be sent to Lower Slobovia or something for that. And... Um, uh, some of my friends on the office staff kind of interceded, and I got uh, sent as a co-junior companion. <laughs> so you clearly had a lot of confidence. I didn't have confidence. I, I just thought it was reciting the thing I should say. I, it's not a matter of confidence. I'm just kind of stupid. I just said that what I thought came to my mind about, well, shouldn't we be doing this? I didn't want him to make a mistake as a mission president. He did get released early. He did make some mistakes. My The person who... Uh, uh, released me from my mission was Hartman Rector Jr. He was a substitute mission president. And um, he interviewed me quite thoroughly, it took a day, because he had seen what president, uh, the other president had written about me. And he had, uh, Hartman, uh, who I know quite well and have known for since 1969 when I was released, we became very close friends. And um, he he went through the the blue sheet that they, the president of the, you know, they stick in your permanent file at the church headquarters, I guess, and he rewrote it uh, because he said this was just completely slanderous. He felt that the president had his own agenda and that was wrong, and, and I got, you know, redeemed at that point. A couple of months later, and the reason why I tell you this story is that a couple of months later, I'm teaching at the LTM. I didn't go to the LTM because they didn't teach Italian then when I left in 66. By 69, they were teaching Italian in the LTM, and I was a return Italian missionary, so I got a job at BYU teaching missionaries. 
And um, and again, I, I taught this same doctrine about Christ. <laughs> and I got into trouble immediately. I was, uh, uh, it turned out that the second counselor in the mission presidency of the LTM, Ernest Wilkins was the president. He was Harold B. Lee's son-in-law. And, um, and his counselor, I forget his counselor's name, um, his second counselor was at, at the Sunday school class that I was teaching to these Italian missionaries, and I did the same thing. I said, look, the Book of Mormon says this about Christ. I think we have to be much more Christ-centered than we are. And at that time, I wasn't saying don't pray to God the Father. Or I mean, my view is that Christ is the Father. You can pray to him in, in the name of the Son or in the name of the Father. It doesn't matter. It's, it's not like that. It's just you pray to God. It's him. And, um, but I wasn't emphasizing the difference. I was just emphasizing the, these points in the Book of Mormon. And, of course, I got, immediately got into trouble and was dragged into... To, and I was accused of heresy by Ernest L. Wilkins, who was the president of the... Not Ernest L. Wilkinson, who was the president of the university. He's Wilkinson. But Ernest L. Wilkins was the president of the LTM. And he told me that I was wrong. And I said, well, okay, why? tell me why I'm wrong. Tell me why these scriptures are wrong. He says, I don't know why they're wrong. He says, I'm just the mission president and I get to decide what's wrong. And I said, well, why don't you ordain me a high priest and then I can, I can decide what's right and wrong too. So that was the coup de grace for him. He said, you insolent little um, troublemaker, that's what he said. Um, I'm sending you to see one of the general authorities. They'll clean you out. They'll fix you up. So I was, <laughs> I was scheduled to see somebody like Bernard P. Brockbank, who was sick that day, and so they shuttled me off to somebody else, and it turned out to be Hartman Rector, Jr., and I walked into his office and he looked at me and said, what are you doing here? I said, I don't know. This is what I said. This is what happened. I laid it all out. He said, well, I teach that doctrine all the time. What's wrong with that? <laughs> I said, well, apparently Ernest L. Wilkins doesn't understand it because he's all upset. So he says, don't worry about it. Go down there. I'll make a call. And he did call down and they restored my job and allowed me to go on. But I could see the handwriting on the wall and I, um, I quit and became the copy editor of the Banyan yearbook, and that's how I earned some money the rest of the semester. Real quick, just back to your mission for a second. Um, how, how did your mission go in terms of uh, success? Did you, you know, were there baptisms? Were, were units growing? You know, how, how, did, that, how did that all shake out? Uh, was it a tough mission with not lots of uh, success or, you know, baptisms or? Well... <laughs> I have a story about that, too. <laughs> when I was on the office staff, we were living on Viali Mazzini, and we had a, an office in one building, and right across the street there was a big apartment for the missionaries. And in the apartment for the missionaries, there's, um, it was all made out of marble. Okay, I mean, the Italians don't use wood. They don't have a lot of wood. They use marble. And... Um, I remember meeting in this marble dining room with a marble table and the assistance to the president. I, I was the historian and recorder, so I didn't have a lot of say-so in the management of the mission, but they heard my voice. And I considered them all my friends. And they were trying to come up with a motto for the mission, which I felt was kind of silly. I didn't think we needed a motto, but fine. And they came up with the motto of 
6540 and baptize. <laughs> and I thought, what are you guys talking about? <laughs> and it was that you, the motto was that you, if, you, if you tracked 65 hours a week and teach 40 hours a week, you will baptize. Well, who are you going to teach 40 hours a week was my question. I mean, what are we going to do, you know, hogtie people and, you know, tie them to a lamppost and teach them? I mean, it's really hard to get people to let you in and listen to you. This is an, this is an impossible burden. And uh, so we, had, we were sitting in this marble room around this marble conference table talking about this, and I said, look, I think if we're going to have a mission slogan or motto, it should be scriptural. And they said, well, what do you suggest? And I said, I suggest... In the world you shall have tribulation, but be of good cheer, I have overcome the world. <laughs> that, was, that was my idea of a motto, not 6540 or baptized. You can see by that how far apart we were. Because I'm thinking, this is a tough mission. Not many people get baptized. It's very hard to get into people's doors. The missionaries are working themselves. You know, They think that if, this, if they pray harder and work longer, they'll get more success. But I don't think that that's it here. I think it just takes patience and and uh, and not it's not about ours. It's just about being guided to the people who want to hear this message, and not to be overly concerned if there just aren't a whole lot of baptisms. It's 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 not in our hands. We are only the instruments of the Lord. We are not going to create great success by works. Again, you know, it comes to my grace works issue which is the other theological, you ask, is there another one more important than Christ? No, but it's tied to him. Things happen by his grace, his sufferance. It doesn't happen because we want it so badly that it's going to happen. That's kind of a New Age idea. My idea was, you know, suffer, you suffer the things that happen, and you try to find a meaning in them. But anyway, um, so that was... In answer to your question, was it successful? I think the mission was successful, but you would not be able to tell that by looking at the statistics. That doesn't count. Okay, so how did you go from uh, from this theology into the Sunstone sort of, you know, pursuits? Well, when I got, let me say one thing about my mission that I should point out, and that is we had motorbikes. Let me say no more than that. Okay. That we were able to ride motorbikes. So it was... It was a mission that was not like today. I mean, I didn't have to wear a suit all the time. Sometimes I wore a cardigan sweater, a sports coat, and slacks. And um, the mission president didn't seem to care. We didn't have that kind of rules. Um, I didn't start out knowing how to ride a motorbike on my mission, but when I was done, I could. Okay. So it was a different mission. It was very open. And, and do you think that that, do you have an opinion about uh, whether that is a more appropriate model versus the highly regulated missions that we have today? I think it is, because what it does is it relies upon the maturation of the missionaries. They may not arrive mature, mature but they, they become that way, because they're expected to. In a heavily regulated boot camp kind of suits, name tags, bikes and helmets and backpacks, not only do we make our missionaries look peculiar in a way that they don't really need to, but I think that they don't get an opportunity to exhibit the spiritual gifts because they're under rules. 
you can't be, you know, inspiration. I mean, how many inspirations do we read about in Scripture where the inspiration was to obey the rule? Most of the time, the inspiration is to break the rule or to do something that no rule covers or to do something unusual to break out of the envelope. But no, no missionaries aren't going to do that, usually. So, you know, I don't see how... It's like we deny the spiritual gifts by not letting them operate for fear that they might cause embarrassment. You know, you have two missionaries sitting on a Buddha. Did they get inspired to do that? No. Was that immaturity? Yes. But that's the risk you have to take in sending 19-year-olds out. But if you teach them, you know, correct principles, they should be able to govern themselves, but we apparently don't believe that. We believe in not really... They're a little confused on principles, but they at least know that they're supposed to obey their mission president and the rules, which I think, you know, certainly probably there's some guys in, on the mission and gals that need that, but I don't think that we should structure the entire missionary program of the church on that. Okay. So where were we? To Sunstone. Oh, you want to move on to Sunstone. Well, okay, this is what happened. I get off my mission in 1969, and I give my first Sunstone speech in 1985. So that's 16 years later. So what happens between 1969 and 1985? Well, what happens is, briefly, is that in 69, I, I graduate from, um, uh, with my uh, bachelor's degree in English in, I think, 71. 71. And then I get a master's degree in English. I did work in Shakespeare, and I... I got it in 72. I meet my wife, Margaret, in 72, but just as a friend. Margaret and I know each other. Um, in 73, uh, in 72, I become a faculty member at BYU in the, in the um, communications department, and I have the job of supervising the student publications where I had done some work. And I help... Lauren F. Wheelwright organized the first Mormon Festival of Arts at BYU. And then, um, but the communications department felt like I was railroaded into the position on the faculty that they wanted to give to somebody that they wanted to choose. And so I realized that, and so I quit the next year. And I went to work at the Ensign, Mag the Ensign Magazine under Jay Todd. Uh, and this was before Levina was there and others later. But I, I worked there as an associate editor for about a year. But I found it to be a very cramped and strange experience working for the church. I didn't like it. it, it J. Todd, bless his heart, I, I, I just couldn't tolerate him. He was, uh, they're also controlling, and, and there, there's ill will in the church office building. They don't like to admit this, but there is. People are poorly paid, and, you know, there's ill will. And so I, I left. And when I... Um, I, I left, and then that was 1973, and then in 1973 I went to Washington, D.C. to get a job working for the uh, United States Information um, Agency. But when I got there, they Nixon just, there was a big change uh, turnover, and there was a whole bunch of people who worked in that agency who had been let go, and they were on the street looking for jobs, and they had more connections than I did. So I didn't stay there very long, but I stayed there long enough to go to some of the Watergate hearings and to, and to be in the White House during the Watergate period. I had a friend of mine who was an intern at the 
at the White House, and I met him there. And he, I was actually in the Oval Office while Nixon was down the hall getting his hair cut. And later he got the real haircut, but that was a year later, 74. But the hearings were being held uh, at that time. Uh, I went, and that, on that trip, I went up to the pageant up in Camorra, and Margaret happened to be there with her family, and I met her there again. I was kind of curious. And um, I toured the, the parts of the New York area for the church, you know, so, so I could get a sense of what that was. I hadn't been back there to see those. And on the way back, I, th I think I went to Nauvoo and Car Carthage and all of that. We saw all of that. I think it was on the way out there rather than on the way back. But I got back uh, that fall, and then I got a job at BYU working in the Department of Instructional Development where we wrote textbooks and helped faculty members author their textbooks. And in that, that's where I met Ann Osborne, who's now, mar who's now married to um, uh, uh, Pullman, who was the former general authority, uh, Elder Pullman. And um, I just saw them about two or three months ago at a, uh, at a gathering uh, that Helen Whitney put together for all of those people who had participated in this recent documentary on the Mormons. And Ann Osborne, who was in that documentary, my wife was in that documentary. Um, I went to the party. And there's Ann Osborne, who I hadn't seen in 30 years. And... Uh, he, uh, she uh, was so happy to see me, and she told everybody that I was the one who had taught her how to write, and she had a great career as a writer after that. <laughs> and I talked to Elder Pullman. He was very nice to us, and we had a very nice chat, and that was recently. But Ann Osborne was somebody that I worked with way back in the 70s when she was writing her first textbook on reading the, uh, the x-rays of the brain, the blood vessels of the brain. I also wrote with... Uh, uh, I forgot his name. First name was Christian. His name is Christensen. About an 868-page self-teach statistics book. Boy, that was a horrible job, and um, and an advertising book and some other books that I wrote there. And that was going to be my job as being a technical writer. And then uh, I I realized that was maybe this would be a dead end job, and and I applied to the law school to which was uh, had uh, Jerry Rubin Clark Jerry Rubin Clark Law School. And uh, I was not in the first class or the second, but I applied to be in the third class, which was the first one to go to the new facility. And I was admitted, and I went three years to law school and graduated in 78, and I married Margaret right after I passed the bar. And um, Real quick, were you aware of dialogue during this time? I was aware of Sunstone and Dialogue, but I considered them to be liberal publications and that I would not publish in them or speak at Sunstone. In fact, I had a rule for myself because I was considered to be a very good speaker, but I kind of made a promise that I wouldn't get on the mini lecture series and, uh, and speak uh, unless I, I would only speak if I was called upon to do so by my state president or bishop. And at that time, I, had ser I was serving... I served as an elders quorum president in the mid-70s, and then I was called into a bishopric. No, I was called into the mission, stake mission presidency for a while. And then I was called into a bishopric. And, um, but eventually I was released from that bishopric over the same issues that I had been gotten into trouble before. And, it's uh, a recurring theme. It's a recurring theme. And um, I... Uh, I got released. And then we moved, Margaret and I moved to Orem, where uh, in the in 
that was in 79. We moved to Orem. In 19, and then we, we had our first child in 79, Angela, who's now 27, maybe 28, because she was born in 79, so how old is she? Probably 27. It doesn't matter. It's kind of thing a parent mulls over. Because we're embarrassed that we don't know all the time the ages of our children. But I know their names. That's important. Anyway, in 79, we had Angela. But what I'm going to tell you is that in 1980, there was an attempt to... to um, uh, our state president, that former state president at BYU, had called the new state president in our Orem ward and felt that we were not Orthodox Mormons. And they there was an attempt to, we actually went through a, an informal um, tribunal. Around what year? 1980. Over over the stuff you were teaching, talking about? The uh, no, we were accused of practicing polygamy, and we were accused of uh, promoting various evils. None of who, were the women, who were the other women? Well, it wasn't me. I wasn't the one who was supposed to have been practicing polygamy. I was supposed to have encouraged it in some others. Friend, I, friends you had? Uh, well, not friends. It was somebody... It's a long and painful story that I'd rather not get into. But there was a student at BYU... You brought it up. <laughs> well, I did, but it, they, they, they had a number of... I'm saying there were a number of different allegations, none of which were true, and eventually we were cleared of all of them because it was just made up, essentially. And... Um, but was there something you were doing that was uh, not ordinary or, or different or unorthodox that was leading people to want to try and speculate or, or make up? I think the only thing that we did was that students who had been in our old BYU ward would come over to our house and that we would talk about stuff. That was the main thing. I don't think there was any... There was nothing other than that, except that it turned out that one of the young men that was coming over to our house and talking to us actually did have, in his own mind, a relationship with two women. They did have a kind of plural marriage arrangement about which we had no knowledge. Mm. And when we did, we told them, well, you know, you can't be married. This is just nothing. I mean, how can it's kind of adultery <laughs> or fornication or something like that. But, but by that time... Uh, this came to be known to some of the state presidents at BYU, and they felt that somehow I had encouraged this. Mm, okay. When it was really, I mean, I've never been um, a, a, fundamentalist. Fan of, a fan of polygamy. I mean, even though I understand that it's part of our history and it may have purposes, it's not something that I've ever okay. thought was a good thing for us. So some bumps up with leadership in the in, yeah bumps in up. In fact, they actually had meetings with Margaret and I, and Margaret was holding Angela, and when she was a tiny baby, and um, you know they were just grilling us, and I was not doing very well in answering their questions. I was very obstreperous and a little rude, and I said things I probably would not say now, or maybe I would. I don't know, but uh, they were irritating me because they were always going after me. And I was always trying to support them. I wasn't saying that people should leave the church. See, I never believed, even if I believed that the doctrine was not taught right, I never believed that erring, erring in doctrine was a, a sin. I, I don't think it's always very helpful to err in doctrine, but, you know, I understood that people have differences in doctrine, you know. I didn't care that the leaders didn't think the way I did. I always thought that they were the leaders of the church. I, I didn't 
I didn't think that a leader of the church had to be correct all the time. They had to be authorized, because the main thing I saw them doing was authorizing the performance of all of the ordinances that bound us together. The way I've put this in another place is to say, well, you know, it's the Pope that binds the Catholic Church. You have to be allegiant, allegiance to the Pope. And, and in Protestantism, you have to believe that the Bible is inerrant, or at least if it's not inerrant, it is the authority that you believe in. And of course, in Protestantism, mis different readings of the Bible will create different denominations, schisms, right? But in Mormonism, I didn't think that either authority was the unifying principle or uh, scripture was the unifying principle. I thought that the unifying principle was the ordinances. If you b accepted the ordinances and believed in the ordinances and accepted them, it made you part of the family. It's like being born into a family. And you can't undo that. It's like DNA. I mean, you're in it. You may be a black sheep in the family. They may not always like you. You may disagree with dad and mom about some things, but you're in. And that's how I felt Mormonism was, that the ordinances made us in the family. So it never occurred to me that I would be excommunicated for my beliefs. Because I, I, I understood you could be excommunicated for sin, but I didn't think it was a sin to earn doctrine. And I always have left open the idea that I could be wrong. But, but what I've experienced in Mormonism is that nobody tries to show that you're wrong. They just assume you're wrong or explain to you why you're wrong without ever going through the trouble of proving or demonstrating that you're wrong. And this, this is what I see happen all the time. So even in all those instances that I've mentioned before where I got myself into trouble, there was never an attempt to show me that I was wrong or explain why. I mean, they would say, you're wrong because, you know, you, you're not obedient. But they wouldn't say, well, you know, look at, I'd say, well, look at this scripture. Why, why would it say that? And this over here say that. How do you reconcile those things? There was never any discussion like that, and there never was at my excommunication. It was always, we're right, you're wrong. Which I, I suppose it's just, you know, Sicilianness. I just We don't like to be pushed around. Talk to me, let's eat together, but let, don't tell me what to do because I, I want you to prove it to me. Show me something. So, uh, by 70, by, that happened in the 80s, and I got a black mark, or they have some kind of sticker. I think it's a, an unsmiley face that they put on your church records. Because after that, I was never called to anything. We moved to Salt Lake about oh, three or four years later, and I hadn't been called to anything for a long time, which was unusual because we attended church all the time. We were active and paid our tithing. And uh, I got it into my head. I, said, I called my friend, Hartman Rector. I said, you know, Hartman, I think somebody's put a, some kind of a mark on my record. I don't know why I think this, but I just haven't been called to anything. Could you check? And he did, and he called me back, and he says, yes, they did. <laughs> they put a mark or something that says you're not to be called to anything. And I said, oh, that's very discouraging because there was never any, even though they had tried us and told us that they'd cleared there was nothing to it, they still marked the records. And so after that, that was like in 84.